Hello and welcome. My name is Cassie Perlongo, and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. So I thought we could start out with you introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your science background. Happy to be here. I am Florian Schwantner, and uh, that is a German name, if you're wondering about the accent and the name. I work at the Ames Research Center in the Earth Science Division as the deputy director um, of the division. I don't do very much research myself anymore, uh, mostly management now, but I still keep at the polls. So I wasn't born in the U.S. I was born in Germany and raised in both Germany and Greece, moved to the U.S. as an adult by choice and became an American a couple of years ago. My life and career path is definitely not linear. It's not a straight from A to B and success all the way. But a lot of setbacks and lessons learned. It led me in the end to become a scientist and hopefully a human being that can uh, lead others in my position um, by example with all the wrinkles of uh, imperfections that every human being has. Oh, I really like how you describe that. And as a humanities major, I very much appreciate the fact that you said it wasn't a linear path. <laughs> Because that's very in tune with humanities. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So you've already started talking a little bit about your background, but uh, you know, take me back. Were you always scientifically minded? Um, what were you like as a kid? Did where did you get into science as a young adult? Did you have science influences? I did both from the natural environment as well as from the family. Uh, so my dad was an archaeologist. And that is why I spent a lot of time in my childhood in Greece. Uh, he was by training, by training an architect. So he, he was a crossover between disciplines and between more engineering minded and more humanities minded types of research with a little bit of natural science folded into that. So I was exposed to a lot of that and walking through agricultural fields and landscapes in Greece with my dad as a kid, um, I learned pretty quickly to notice things that are different, things that mm -hmm. don't belong into the natural environment, because that's how archaeologists find things. Um, if they suspect there may be an ancient settlement somewhere, they go and survey large areas and, uh, and look for anomalies. And sometimes these anomalies are obvious if you have a ruin or something, and sometimes they're not. They're plowed under a field. And uh, so noticing these anomalous things, my dad dragging me along, I, I kept picking up interesting rocks instead of pottery shards and artifacts. And <laughs> I remember him telling me, stop picking up rocks, start <laughs> looking for artifacts. So long story short, living in that fantastic human and natural environment in a, on a Greek island um, for, for some part of my childhood, uh, I was exposed to a lot of interesting aspects of humanity, of disasters, of uh, the natural environment, storms, wildfires, volcanoes, environmental disasters, political disasters. In the end, it, I think it prepared me well as a human being to think of Earth and the human environment as a system. And then something happened. I, uh, I lived in Germany as an adolescent in uh, back then still divided Germany in West Berlin. And the Chernobyl disaster happened in 1986. And 
when you're a teenager, you know, 15, 16 years old, you're, you know, you want to hang out with your friends and be outside and explore life a little bit. And it wasn't possible, really. It's, it's very much that experience at the time with the aerosol cloud of Chernobyl uh, moving over Central Europe and raining out. It was very similar like now during the COVID-19 pandemic that uh, yes. you, know, you have to outside, you were advised to wear um, masks that, that filter particles out. And when you came home, you shed your clothes and put them in the washer and took a shower. Very, very similar experience at the time. It, it led me to think about uh, the interactions between science, humanity and the, and the environment. And um, so I, I was thinking more and more about how to make a difference in life as a person and contribute to the solution rather than being part of the problem. And, and so I, uh, I was thinking about a science career and going to college. And I was thinking about chemistry, environmental science, environmental engineering. And, and then I ran into one of my distant cousins who, who said, well, we do all of that, but with a lot of field work, just like you experienced in archaeology, and that's geology. It's a great intersect between between all of those aspects. And I realized soon then I en en enrolled in geology as an undergrad. I realized soon that a lot of the actual arguments and publications are chemistry and physics and mm. sometimes biology. And and so I realized I had to take extra classes than what the geology curriculum offered to really be able to make a difference. So I took many extra classes in material science, chemistry, and other things, and, and I positioned myself well for stipends. So as a, uh, in during my master's time, I uh, spent a year in the US uh, in Seattle at the University of Washington and, and uh, was exposed to something that really struck me, and that is active volcanoes right. and how active volcanoes affect humans. And I had a seminal experience there. I came along with a class of undergraduates as one of, I think, three graduate students in it with a, uh, a USGS researcher who was resident at the University of Washington. Um, and he took me along, and us along as a, as a group. He took us along for a few weeks. What I experienced there was really astounding. First, I realized that the effect of volcanic eruptions is often not the eruption itself, but the aftermath. What, what do you mean by that? So, for instance, the disruption to infrastructure, displacement of people, food security, but also ongoing disasters and hazards that uh, that lead to disasters. For instance, in the case of Pinatubo, um, second largest volcanic eruption in the last century on Earth, it put out so much volcanic ash that deposited on the slopes that the tropical rains kept washing it out and forming mud flows. And those mud flows that are called lahars, they rush down the mountainside, sometimes at speeds that rival highway speed here. And those affect the people around it because those lahars, those mud flows then deposit in the villages and in the cities and bury everything. People, houses, infrastructure, cars, livestock and so realizing that this was this kept going on for years and years after this eruption killing people and killing people's livelihood was a seminal experience for me and as part of this trip we went to a resettlement area i remember and i still have a photo of that i remember seeing one woman 
um, that had lost part of her family um, in the aftermath of the eruption. And she had a T-shirt on, said, never give up. And that led me to think about resilience. Those conversations, the people I met, the wonderful, wonderful locals and, uh, and how they dealt with it and how their scientists in the Philippines very professionally dealt with this. That taught me a lot of lessons and believing this would be my life's mission to better understand how volcanoes erupt, how they move to an eruption and how they affect the human environment and to some extent the natural environment as well. That's where basically my career path was set. That is, that's awesome, awe-inspiring. Thank you for sharing your incredible journey. I'm almost at a little bit of loss for words just because that's that's it's so rewarding to hear people talk about something that they feel so passionate about. And I think other people appreciate that, too. And people, you know, we see a lot of science papers that go out, but hearing like your story behind that is just amazing. So, so one of the questions that I've been asking myself is how do volcanoes move from doing nothing from being at rest to being restless. Right. In volcanology, we, we, we say unrest. It's, it's just volcanic unrest. You know, they're restless. They're not doing what they normally do and things are not quite in balance. And from that restlessness, from that unrest, they may possibly move to an eruption. They, are, they don't always do. So understanding what those signals that volcanoes give off before eruptions how to read those signals and how to recognize them and how to best analyze them. That gives us potentially enough of a heads up to take a closer look, to get more certainty in our assessment, and then to recommend an evacuation, which the scientists don't decide, that's that's local authorities. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that was going to lead me right into my question <laughs> about saying, you know, obviously we can't mitigate volcanic activity, but we can mitigate human exposure to such volcanic activity. Exactly. And how is your research helping to inform? Realizing that precursors to volcanic eruptions are real, that they have been used in the past to forecast eruptions means that it's a feasible and important activity to actually do. And it helps people. So consider two things about evacuations. The first is the famous, the boy who cried wolf um, phenomenon. So if you get the forecast wrong, recommend an evacuation, and then the next time you get it right, will people still evacuate? That's a very difficult decision to make. And because of that, we need to get it as good and as early as possible. The earlier we get it, the better we can decide which assets to deploy to a volcano to gain more certainty in our assessment. Because of that, I've been chasing early precursors. One country I've worked in a lot, the Philippines, has very good evacuation procedures and training and awareness in the population. They often have zero casualty evacuations of massive parts of populations around volcanoes and other areas. So it it can be done with enough certainty and early heads up. Now, how does this work? First of all, what types of signals do volcanoes give us? To understand what those signals are, we need to understand what's happening underground. What's happening underground is that magma changes its composition as it moves up from depth toward the surface. As it moves up, it stops once in a while, turns away, and then parts of it may or may not move further up. 
And as it moves up from depth and reaches about 8 to 12 kilometer depth, it starts not being able to contain all of the gases that are dissolved in the magma. These gases, mainly water vapor, CO2, and a bit of SO2, they reach the surface much faster than the, than the magma. And those gases, as they start leaving the magma at that depth, it can be only as much as a few days until they reach the surface. And the magma may take weeks or months or years, if ever, to make it close enough to the surface to possibly lead to an eruption. So in essence, this gas release means that volcanoes seep out gases over a long time period, and this gas signal varies. With that comes, as the magma moves in, comes deformation. And as the gases move up, they carry with it heat. Water and CO2 are, are very good at storing heat. That's why they're good greenhouse gases, too. Right, okay. So they store heat, and they transport heat up. And that's recognizable months to years before an eruption as well. But are you saying yeah. that it can take years for these gases to actually, before they... No, can no. you it detect takes, it? Or? No, um, it, it takes... What the gases tell us is that something is changing in the underground. For instance, if magma has reached that depth level of 8 to 12 kilometers, we start seeing more gases being detected at the surface. As it moves even closer, we may start seeing even more and maybe a different composition, different chemical composition. And with that go other signals. As the gases move through cracks, and through the underground, they make that underground vibrate. And that's something that with seismic detectors, with seismometers, we can detect. Okay. So we can detect seismicity, deformation, and gas release, and thermal signals at the same time. And it tells us a more complete picture about what is happening underground. So those observables that we have at the surface are some something that is very valuable to understand those precursory symptoms of a volcano essentially getting sick, if you want, getting ready to potentially erupt. Those precursors are what I try to understand and establish better techniques and better knowledge to understand them. And from that understanding, a better way to, to project into the future of, of what's going to happen next. That's incredible. You were talking before about this holistic viewpoint, and I can see now the full picture because, of course, we want right. to save the, the whole thing is saving human lives and obviously right. understanding the science behind volcanoes. But having that so you have like an early, early detection system, I mean, that could be obviously there's a lot of people who have been it's ingrained in their culture. They understand now uh, things with evacuations, but having it so that it's less disruptive for people that maybe the volcano's having a bad day or something, but it's not hazardous and people don't mm -hmm. necessarily have to evacuate. So you work a lot with government to at least to help to inform like local yeah, governments. Yeah, that's right. So uh, um, a few years ago, we realized that pushing the envelope on these precursors is, is not only technology and science limited, but it's also data limited and it's politically and knowledge base limited. And so capacity building is an important aspect of it. And the NASA Disasters Program engages in capacity building as well. And data limitations, there's efforts to, to bring all the different data streams worldwide to, together into common databases to, to help understand better how volcanoes work, 
and how to how to use that information for forecasts. And many years ago, I I helped get off the ground a project from the World Organization of Volcano Observatories called WOVODAT. Uh, that's the World Organization of Volcano Observatories database of volcanic unrest. So I contributed to the design and led a pilot study, and then we eventually handed it over to the Earth Observatory for Singapore that still leads that project now. And interestingly, I ended up there as well about a decade ago in 2009. What I did there is I worked there for a few years designing and deploying early warning instrument networks on volcanoes. So basically putting instruments on the ground that measure those things like the seismicity, the gas release, the deformation uh, with a team in Singapore. And uh, I worked in areas like the Philippines and Indonesia with wonderful colleagues there who hosted me as a guest in their country. And and I have to really say that these these partnerships were extremely fruitful and productive. Uh, We learned a lot from each other and and that really is worth so much to me as a person, as a scientist that I could learn from them and interact with them. That that was tremendous. Uh, we, We should not live in a bubble when we do science. Do you work with a number of people outside of uh, volcanology, too, when you're conducting your science yeah, yeah, partnerships? Yeah, absolutely. You know, work with local governments, uh, with schools, with villages, you know, doing educational work as well, um, advocacy as well, working also with other scientific disciplines. One thing I noticed there at the volcanoes, there's one volcano I particularly worked on uh, called Mayon Volcano in the Philippines. And... We installed and tested an upgrade to their local government-run autonomous instrument network, and I noticed two things. With regards to these gas precursors, I first realized the amount of effort it takes to do it right is tremendous and extremely costly. We cannot possibly instrument all volcanoes the way we did there. There's probably only a handful, less than 10 volcanoes worldwide that have and in any way adequate gas monitoring network for particularly for carbon dioxide, which is one of the earliest precursors. So we can look at this on the ground the way I did there, but can we really instrument all of these up to 400 to 600 potentially active volcanoes? Hardly, just cost too much, it's not feasible, right? No. So the question I asked myself, could remote sensing help us here? And the second thing I realized is, As I was measuring CO2 on and in the ground, I was trying to occasionally flush my sensors with clean air just from the surrounding air to get the clean air reading. And I realized, and this makes a lot of sense, as these gases are emitted, they're of course mixing into the air. And so I never got a clean air signal, but I I noticed that I have maybe 200, 300, sometimes 500 parts per million CO2, carbon dioxide, enriched in the local air in these tropical rainforests on these volcanoes. Now, the gas is not coming out of the crater, and this is one of the other misconceptions. Yes, there's gas coming out of the crater, but not only. If you have a volcano between eruptions, the entire volcanic edifice, the entire volcanic body is degassing carbon dioxide and some other gases. In the crater, it may come out as a lot of water vapor and some acid gases. On the volcanic flanks, which sometimes covers a radius up to six to 10 kilometers, you have 
mostly CO2 coming out, cold, not hot, not acidic. And it's not changing the ground in any noticeable way, but it's seeping out slowly and, and, and also seeping into these forests. So I'll get to that second point a little bit later, but first of the first point. So I realized we cannot instrument all volcanoes on the ground. Looking at remote sensing, 2009, I started by looking at, at satellites that observe CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere, if we can possibly detect a CO2 signal from volcanoes. Now, this is really difficult because the satellites are sensitive to the entire column of air between the satellite and the ground. Right. And there's a lot of CO2 in there. Yeah. And thanks to us, more and more every year. So how do you segregate that, Florian? Is it possible or is it like a needle in a haystack? It is a bit of a needle in a haystack and we learned some hard lessons. So the first orbiting carbon observatory that was just called OCO was launched in 2009 and didn't make it. And in the same month, the uh, Japanese space agency, JAXA, launched GOSAT, doing measurements slightly differently, but still doing measurements of CO2. After Singapore, I joined the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Pasadena, and uh, working on the OCO science team that helped the Japanese as a joint team. So I worked on the OCO and GOSAT science team for quite a long time doing that type of work and also doing my research. And that helped me understand better how to work with the data and what the likelihood is to ever possibly see a volcanic signal. And we started seeing some things and working on that. And then in 2014, uh, we successfully launched the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2, OCO2. And in 2015, made some really good observations over cities, some over power plants, and some over volcanoes that I published. And that was put in the journal Science in 2017, where we showed that for the first time, we were able to detect a clear signal of volcanic CO2 of three different volcanoes in three different stages of pre-SYN eruption, so before and during an eruption. And... The other thing we realized from that paper is, yes, there's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere and we can see these eruptions, but does that mean we can possibly see those precursors, those early variations in CO2 that telltale and maybe herald an eruption, maybe weeks to months before? And the simple answer is no, we can't possibly. Or just just not yet. Do we not have the technology yet? don't yet have the technology and Mm. the atmospheric signal is too strong to see that weak signal of a volcano. uh, And satellites don't stay, well, some of them do, but they don't stay usually a small satellite constantly and taking pictures. So that realization that we cannot really anytime soon yet Mm. get to those precursor signals from space with CO2 measurements was a bit of a chilling effect, but at the same time, we had that second realization that that CO2 seeping out of the ground continuously with some variations that tell us something, that that seeps into forests that grow on the sides, on the slopes of these volcanoes. For those forests, CO2, carbon dioxide, is food. As they eat, they may get bigger. Well, they may add more biomass. It's the same if, you know, I'm a big guy. If, if, if you put extra food in front of me, I'll probably eat it and then I'll get bigger. 
right? <laughs> but I also will be will be done at some point and will say, oof, I can't take anymore. And the trees do the same thing. They close their pores on the leaves, their stomata, when they have enough CO2, when they're done for the day, and they close them, which also means that they cannot cool themselves as efficiently anymore through evapotranspiration. And that is a heat signal that a satellite instrument like the uh, NASA's EcoStress instrument on the space station can see. They can see that stress signal, the thermal and the stress, water stress signal. And we have other satellites that can see other effects, you know, with potential uh, LIDAR measurements, we can measure biomass. And so what we did is we got a little bit of uh, seed funding at JPL a few years ago and started a project and initiative to look at this effect, combining an ecological team and a volcanological team and, and building a consortium with different universities, multiple NASA centers. And we started looking at this and did some field work and realized that, um, yes, there's measurable effects on the biomass. There's short term and long term effects. So the trees probably take up the CO2, build extra biomass, and we can trace that in carbon isotopes. Uh, because the CO2 coming from volcanoes is isotopically very distinct from that in air. So we can see those long-term effects, but we can also see short-term, almost real-time effects, and that is, as plants do photosynthesis, they re-emit fluorescent light, and that is something that can be measured from space. So sunlight oh is gosh. something that those plants use in the Calvin cycle to crack right. water and, and build, build biomass, and uh, that process re-emits fluorescent light. And there are sensors that can see that from space. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a knowledge base to, in the future, enable measurements of the response of those trees to that extra CO2. And that gives us a proxy signal that is much more sensitive than trying to measure the CO2 itself. If we understand how to read it and how to analyze it, then we could use the trees as sensors. That is incredible. And what I'm envisioning and my analogy right now is that you have a toolbox, but you don't know the tools to put in it quite yet, or you're starting to see the tools, or you're trying to build something and you have some of the tools in the toolbox, but you don't have all the tools you need to complete the project that you're building or something, but you're continuously adding to it. Yeah, I mean, we have a feasible way forward, but we need to refine the process and we need to understand the science better. You know, there's things being invested into this. In the end, it's not only good for volcanology, but it's actually a boon for climate science and ecology as well. Ecologists are trying to understand where the CO2 in the atmosphere is going to go in the future. How are the world's oceans and the world's forests responding to that? Will the forest turn into a net source of CO2 or a net sink? And under what conditions? How will that vary regionally? The other thing I wanted to ask you is I'm sure there are a lot of people who are interested in volcanology or getting into it or science, you know, with your different pathways and different science disciplines that you took classes in. What, what advice would you want to give to people either shifting careers or young people mentees if you like mentors you know if you wanted to be a mentor what advice would you like to give to people who are considering going into this career path the career path is not going to be straight that's the first <laughs> thing 
<laughs> Why is that? Is it, different ways and to it's go? never too late. Uh, yeah, uh, I can say something about that. So a very good friend of mine had a, an athletic career and then injured himself and went into science and became a professor. Another friend of mine that I worked very closely with was in the Marines for many years and then went to college and became a professor. That's all possible. Um, others went into government research or industry. To get where you want to go, I think it's important to have a goal in mind and keep that goal in mind as, as something that every step toward that goal is an objective that you that you need to to reach and and obstacles to overcome. So having a goal is really important. I think for me the goal was to to find a way to to better predict volcanic eruptions in in practice. That was my goal, and to make a difference in people's lives. And the way you do that doesn't necessarily have to be that you're the heroic person on the ground. And in volcanology, that's often you go to the field and. And, uh, you know, you stand in the crater with a gas mask and do uh, seemingly heroic things. That's great for pictures, but um, it's also a great contribution to science. But the goal should not be a great picture that you put on Instagram or, or some other social media thing. I think it should be something tangible that, that helps people. Going to science is not a great way to make a lot of money. And, yeah. and that's why I think you have to have a value framework that supports your goal that is not money oriented. The second thing I would say is do not hesitate to connect with people, especially those who mean who may seem very far removed from you, like a famous researcher or professor. They're all human beings. Send them an email. You know, they may they may react. And it's I did that the same way. And I have I've, I've had folks that contacted me out of nowhere from small uh, community colleges and and they ended up being first an intern then employed and then moving on to a great career it's all about connecting with people it's not so much about connections that others have for you but it's your own enthusiasm your own persistence that makes it pay off and i think the third and to me most important one is to understand that almost no one goes through life in a career path without setbacks and convolutions in their path. Uh, it may sometimes seem so. Somebody gets a job right out of college or out of their PhD. Sure, it doesn't mean that they're happy. It doesn't mean that they're successful. Some of them are. And it doesn't make their path necessarily any easier. Everyone is a human being with strengths and weaknesses and imperfections. Uh, if, you end, if you end up sitting in a job interview, I think what's really important is honesty. Living up to your own personality, your own path. Don't, to tr don't try to be somebody that you're not um, because it doesn't pay out once you get hired. You know, then you may get fired again. Yeah. Uh, so honesty, I think it's very important. And for the job I interviewed that I have now, I was honest and I, I told them I had a 10 year gap in being productive because I was taking care of somebody chronically ill. You know, a lot of people have families and right now in the pandemic, it's especially difficult and people with that have caretaking responsibilities, uh, people understand. I think that's a really important point uh, to, to bring honesty into the career path and in, in the relationships you build with people. That's sage advice, especially since we're, we can be such a culture that's about 
showing certain things as opposed to what am I trying to say? Uh, we, we, we always want to be the people in front, right? And just a show, show, show. And it's like, it's nice to actually have that human to human connection. Well, I think it's levels. fine to put yourself in a good light, but it should be based on reality. Yes, agreed. So it was my final question. If you never discovered volcanology and that's something you decided to pursue, what do you think you would be doing today? When I was a kid, I, you know, my, my father was a, was a, quite successful archaeologist and of course I admired that and I wanted to be a little bit like that and then I realized even though I had skills that would put me ahead of some of the other students if I had pursued that there would always be the expectation of oh he cannot possibly be as good as the father or he has to be at least as good as the father so I, I had to own what I do and not be judged by somebody else uh, somebody else's success and so my two sisters and I sort of ended up not quite hitting archaeology but uh, hitting aspects of it so geology is somewhat related anthropology one of my sisters also related architecture one of my other sisters also related if you take if you take the sum of that and the average we we'll probably end up back in archaeology there's a lot of A's with what you just said number one and number two I'm starting to feel like you're Indiana Jones in a way because, you know, <laughs> going off of the, the archaeology route and everything else. So that's interesting. One thing that helped us, we all went to college in Europe, not in the UK, where college education at the time was basically entirely free and in most countries in Europe still is. So that helped. Otherwise, we would not have been in college. Florin, thank you so much for going on this journey with me and sharing um, your incredible science journey with everything that you've been involved with. And I hope that people, I certainly have a better understanding now of how we can add to this toolbox of the preparation and how disruptive certain things can be and just trying to mitigate that. You know, we need volcanoes, they're critical, we need to have them, but we need to also preserve human life and how best can we do that. Your research is really fascinating, so I can't wait to see what else you're going to be doing in the near future. I'll make sure to keep you updated. Thank you.